This episode is brought to you by the AIA Film Challenge. Let architecture inspire your next short for a chance to win $5,000 in a screening at the Architecture and Design Film Festival in New York. The fourth annual AIA Film Challenge invites filmmakers to team with architects and share stories of architects and civic leaders designing a better future for our communities. Register today at AIAFilmChallenge.org. That's AIAFilmChallenge.org. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Charles Hain. I'm Eric Lures. And I'm John Fusco. And it's July 5th, 2018. On this week's show, where to go if you want to work in film and TV, when to know that it's time to invest in your own gear, Morgan Spurlock's uncertain fate, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and weekly words of wisdom. Welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. And uh, this week, for those of you in America, you know it's July 4th. Woohoo! Independence even, Day. Even for people outside of America, it's July 4th. Oh, that's but, true. To be fair. In some it, countries, it's like quatre de juillet. Correct. But whatever. Anyway. So they could be running the Georgian calendar, right? We, we could have some Eastern Orthodox church people here rolling at... June 19th. It's true. For mystics, I don't know what the lunar calendar date is. But the point is, it is Independence Day, which I think is the most appropriate holiday for this podcast. So happy Independence Day to our Indie Film Weekly listeners of independent filmmaking nature. I'm mentioning all of this because uh, the show is airing on July 5th, but because of the holiday, we are recording a day early on July 3rd. So just a heads up, some of the information may have shifted by the time you hear this. And with that said, I'm going to get right into headlines. So after I got back from L.A. a couple weeks ago, you guys might remember that we talked about how some of our friends from the indie film community are moving out there. And there seems to be kind of a resurgence of an indie film scene um, in, you know, in the Hollywood context. Now, with today's news, I realize that that may be kind of a ripple effect of a larger effort by both the film and TV industry and the California government to bring more production in general back to their state. Other states, our state of New York included, have aggressively pursued local production with competitive tax and reimbursement plans in recent years. And then in 2014, California started shooting back, introducing a bill that would allocate $330 million in film and TV incentives each year until 2020. Yesterday, that program was extended another five years to 2025. In good news for those of us who are working in the business, the bill has an emphasis on local employment. So you have to employ a certain percentage of local uh, workers to get that sort of tax incentive. And interestingly, in the wake of Me Too, anti-sexual harassment policy requirements have been added to this week's new version of the bill. And these bills aren't just made out of the goodness of politicians' hearts. It's big business and a win-win. According to Deadline, quote, for the $840 million awarded to 150 approved projects of the big and small screens since the last version of the California Film Commission administered program went into effect three years ago, Nearly 30,000 cast members have been hired, as have 18,000 crew members below and above the line. Including the latest application period, Deadline also reports that 15 series have now made the relocation shift to California from other states and countries due to the state's incentives offerings. So the upshot is, if you're looking to work in TV or film, Hollywood actually may be returning to somewhat of its former glory in terms of employment opportunities, 
And if you're shooting a film, you may want to check out the California Film Commission and see if you qualify to apply for the state's production incentives. Fortunately or unfortunately, we all remember who Morgan Spurlock is, uh, the documentary filmmaker behind such movies as the McDonald's Confronting Supersize Me and the TV series 30 Days, uh, not to mention his being the co-founder of the successful film and television production company, Warrior Poets. Uh, After premiering at the Toronto International Film Festival last year, the filmmaker's latest doc, Super Size Me 2, which exposes the billion-dollar poultry business for being inhumane and very competitive and business practices can be a little shady, uh, sold to YouTube Red for $3.5 million, signaling the next big hit for both the filmmaker and the streaming service. However, after Spurlock admitted this past December that he had engaged in sexual misconduct in the workplace throughout his career, YouTube Red dropped the film and Spurlock stepped down from his post at Warrior Poets. Now the film may never see the light of day. However, some of the farmers featured in the film still want the movie to come out as it helps document the corruption and moral practices of their industry and makes sure that the richer get richer while the farmers continue to get less and less. So as Business Insider reports, farmer Charles Morris, featured in the film, says, I'm going to be honest, I feel like I've been let down, Morris said when asked how he felt about not being contacted by Spurlock directly. I had 10 farmers come up to my house and we had a link to the movie and I showed it to them and everyone just loved it. They were so excited it was coming out. If it were me, I would call you up and say, hey, I screwed up, meaning Spurlock. I would tell you what's going to happen. Morris is now single-handedly trying to get the movie out to the public. The farmer told Business Insider he has tried numerous times to contact YouTube since the company announced it was pulling the movie, and he wants to see if the site would be interested in selling the movie to him. YouTube has never provided him with a response. Uh, I wonder how much this farmer makes if it was originally sold for $3.5 million and he's trying to get the rights to it. Well, uh, at this point, maybe they're not going to sell down. it for quite that uh, It may go down quite a bit. Amount. Uh, it is interesting, though, how a film which seems to have a pretty important and worthwhile message is so, of course, negatively impacted and affected by a filmmaker's outside personal life, uh, which is yeah, always... Yeah, hashtag keep it in your pants. Yeah, hashtag keep it in your pants. And it's always, you know, it's always unfortunate. Obviously, Morgan Spurlock is so much involved in his own movies, and he's usually the star and face of them, so it's going to affect it. But it, it is unfortunate seeing the cause not see the light of day, quote-unquote, because yeah. of the filmmaker's actions. I also think maybe there are other ways around this. If, if they wanted to you know, punish Morgan Spurlock in some way for his past actions. Maybe they release the film because it's an important cause, but they give his portion of the profits to uh, the cause it supports or to, you know, anti-sexual harassment policies or something. There's there's probably another way to deal with this that, that still benefits the, you know, people that are meant to be benefited by the film. Absolutely, yeah. I, I do remember hearing a lot of good things about it, and it just seems like, one of those films that may be on the shelf now for the foreseeable future. Oh, man, it's hard for me not to make a joke about Supersize Me Too. Oh, my God, what an aptly named film. How did that just, like, <laughs> happen now? I know. Good that's job, so, Liz. That's like the most organic pun I've ever watched happen. And it's a movie about farming. <laughs> Organic, see? Oh, I took it too far. That Sorry, guys. Sense. And by guys, I mean all you out there. Moving on to a, a an even heavier topic. You may have heard the tragic news by now about the four journalists and one young sales associate who were gunned down at the local Capital Gazette newspaper in Annapolis, Maryland last week. We've had more shootings in this country lately than I can even count. But this one hits close to home. 
After all, many of our listeners, especially the documentary filmmakers, considered themselves journalists or started their careers as journalists. And of course, we ourselves are an online publication. Even while we don't cover hard-hitting news and are meant to be a service for the film community, we get some nasty trolls now and again. And in the case of the Capital Gazette, the shooter was someone who had repeatedly threatened the paper and its editors and writers on social media. Now, some people have jumped to blaming Donald Trump for this shooting because he's repeatedly called news reporters things like, quote, enemies of the American people. However, Tom Markart, who is the former editor and publisher of the Capital Gazette and whose life had previously been threatened in tweets by the shooter, wrote an opinion in the Washington Post that resonated with me, and I hope it does for you no matter where you fall on the political spectrum. Mr. Markart said, President Trump isn't responsible for the Annapolis tragedy any more than the Second Amendment is, but he and his supporters seem to have forgotten that the Constitution that gives them the right to bear arms is the same document that safeguards the right to free speech. You cannot honor one amendment without honoring the other 26. Those dedicated Capital Gazette journalists, like others before them and surely others after them, fought for free speech at all costs, including death. It's not prayers their survivors and coworkers need. It's respect for what reporters and editors do every day. And that's what Mr. Markhart said. Uh, <clears throat> if you'd like to do something to honor the memories of the victims, information on the Capital Gazette Families Fund and Capital Gazette Memorial Scholarship for Journalism students can be found at capitalgazette.com. I personally always like to support Committee to Protect Journalists, which is also one of the charities you can choose to support through your purchases at Amazon Smile. And I've also heard suggestions to use this tragic event as a reminder to subscribe to your local community paper. Meanwhile, may the victims rest in peace, and we'd like to send a big thank you to the journalists who are out there doing the important work every day. Moving on to gear and tech news, here's Mr. Charles Hain. Why, hello, everybody. I hope everyone is recovering from post-barbecue-related uh, hangover situations this morning. And uh, here is tech news. Our top news this week doesn't initially seem that interesting, but I swear it is. <laughs> so, Sonnet, who are like well known for their Thunderbolt breakout boxes, have released a 10 gig Thunderbolt card for 200 bucks. This is like great. 10G, if you don't know, refers to 10 gig Ethernet, which is 10 times faster than the 1 gig Ethernet that most of us run on every day that was like built into your Mac towers and built into most of your computers. That's all 1 gig Internet. That's the world we've been living in. If you're at a small post house or you're in a little production company or like you and three of your friends are working on a project together, you're almost definitely sharing your media around on one gig copper, which is like fine. But as speeds get faster and faster and faster, we're going to 4K and we're going to 8K. And soon, let's be real, there's going to be a 16K red within two or three years. We need bigger pipes to move all that media around. Yes, fiber optic connectors totally exist for faster transfer, and we've all been at big fancy houses that have fiber. But, man, they're, like, expensive and they're finicky, and everyone I know who runs fiber is constantly, like, troubleshooting it, or, like, you have to lay it straight. If you, like, arc it too much, it doesn't work right. Whereas copper, like, the cable's cheap, and it's, like, everybody knows how to do it, and it's almost plug-and-play. It is great. Now... 10 gig has been coming for a while. The iMac Pro just came out with native built-in 10 gig Ethernet earlier this year. But with this new adapter from Sonnet, you can add 10 gig to any Thunderbolt 3 computer for like $199. And it uses the same 10 gig card as the iMac Pro, which means Mac OS X is going to like natively support it and plug and play. And as OS X continues to improve, as long as Apple supports the iMac Pro, it'll keep supporting this adapter. 
So if you're like a little production company or you're three of your friends thinking about starting a production company or anybody who's like working, trying to do low-budget independent stuff where a, a team works together, holy cow, 10 gig copper arriving is like super exciting to the nerd and me and hopefully now a little bit exciting to the nerds and all of you. Uh, continuing the speed theme this week is a new online delivery tool called Massive. So, like, in North America, at least, I never bother with the Internet to deliver big files like dailies. It's, like, way too slow. I've been burned so many times before. I think I've lost clients over being like, I'll Dropbox you those dailies. And then two days later, I had to send a courier because Dropbox was always like, 12 hours left, 12 hours left. Ugh. And, ugh. Look, Dropbox is wonderful. I use it every day. It's just not wonderful for 200 gigs of files. So... That problem seems to have finally been fixed with Massive, which is a new tool from a Canadian company. I don't know why I said Canadian with such surprise, but whatever. I'm excited. <laughs> Canada, bring it. And uh, Massive has one purpose, delivering big files. Their servers and all of their code is optimized just for that. We tested it here recently with all of our Cinegear videos. We send them to the editor by Massive, which is something we normally never would have done. We usually use hard drives for that kind of thing. And... Uh, they said it would be a certain amount of time to upload the 100 gigs. It uploaded in that amount of time. The editor had no problem downloading them, and they cut them away. And it was like, oh, oh, it was so good. It's three times as fast as Dropbox is on its best day for files that big. And it actually did the time it said it was going to do. Best of all, it's priced per use. So there's like similar systems like Aspera and Signiant and all that stuff that have like subscriptions. This is not a subscription. If you need to deliver dailies like once every four months, you just pay per gig that one time you deliver dailies. And then you don't have to keep paying like 100 a month to be part of the system. And then you do another job in six months, you just pay per gig then. It's really cool. Check it out. Another nerdy one. And then let's do something a little less nerdy for the last one. This is a leak. Korean blog Kofik has released photos of Sam Yang working on cinema anamorphic lenses. Sam Yang, if you don't know them, Darren did a great article breaking down like all of their various brands because they have a lot of brands. But among the many names they make uh, lenses under, they are probably best known for the Zine Primes, which are really nice cinema primes for around $3,000 a piece. They're beloved by many, including very prominent, famous music video and motorcycle feature director Joseph Kahn. Uh, the news that Sam Young is making an anamorphic is kind of a big deal. Yes, there are anamorphics coming from Atlas, but those are going to be like 6000 a piece, and Atlas is a startup, which means we don't know when they're actually going to ship, and we don't have any like concept of how consistent they're going to be lens to lens. There's lots of things there. Sam Yang, very well established within their budget world. They're not a Zeiss or a Cook, but for what they do, they're a known entity. And they're almost definitely going to either match or beat the Atlas price. So this is going to mean more affordable anamorphic glass, more competition. It's going to up everybody's game. Uh, no word yet on branding. Are they going to be zines? Are they going to be something else? No word on pricing. No word on technical info. No word on weight. No word on ship date. Really no word. Just a couple of photos telling us that this is happening. But those two photos got our attention, and we are very curious. This is how rumors get started. got an Ask No Film School question for you. Robert Thomas wrote to say that he's been shooting videos for about five years. He usually rents or borrows, but now the freelance market in his area is picking up and he's been getting a lot more jobs. So he has decided to invest in his own gear. 
he said, I was looking at getting a refurbished Ursa Mini Pro for 5 to 6K. My question is, would I be better off investing less in the camera body, which would be outdated in two years, and spend more on glass and other equipment like gimbal, lights, recorders, etc.? Or is the bang for the buck of the Ursa Mini Pro worth the investment? So what do you have to say to Robert? Rob, first, congratulations on pivoting out of being a rock star and into making videos. And that is a really great question. And we're going to answer it in sort of a sidewaysy kind of fashion and make a few assumptions and guesses while we go. So first off, the, the best camera advice I've ever gotten and I try and give is buy the thing you want. Like there's all sorts of great advice out there about like why this camera or why that camera. But like go play with a bunch of them and the one that like sings to you, you should buy. Of like the prominent models out there right now in the like mirrorless space, there's the Sony and the Panasonic, which are like the smart buys. I have the Fuji. Why? Because I like it. Like, it's the middle of the sensor size. It's like, it just feels right in my hand. But like, on specs, other cameras might win. So, get the one you want. However, after you get the one you want, I, I like what you're thinking about in terms of like, should I put all my money into a sensor or should I get some other accessories? First off, if you're hoping for the gear to pay for itself, which I think once price gets above a couple grand, most of us want it to make its money back, you should get a sense of whether or not you can pay it off in a year or 18 months. There's very few cameras except for the area Alexa that are still renting a lot when they're four or five years old, and you're not probably in Alexa range. So if you're going to put $5,000 in a purchase, do a little research and make sure that you're going to be able to do those rentals at a budget that it's going to pay for itself. If it's a $500 camera and it's still getting $300 for a weekend, you're probably going to be able to pay some of it off. If it's a $5,000 camera and you see a bunch of people in your area putting it out for $100 a weekend, it's going to take a lot more rentals to make that uh, take care of itself. A great place to find local pricing is KitSplit and ShareGrid to see what people are actually charging for their gear. On top of all that, assuming you're not going to make money on this, I think you probably don't want to put as much into a camera as you do into the other part of the accessories. Like if I have 10 grand to spend, I usually think of the camera as being at most like 30% of the budget because we're going to want lenses that are as good as the camera, which are going to cost nearly as much as the camera to pair with it. You're going to want a great tripod. Nothing's worse than like a $6,000 camera on a $200 tripod. You're getting all of these shaky, not smooth shots, so it's not even worth having the nice sensor anyway. You're going to want maybe a gimbal. You're going to want real lighting. So I think like if you're saying to me your overall budget is like six to eight grand, I think looking at like the A7S III and the GH5S and the X-H1 and other cameras where the camera's only two grand might make more sense. I dig the Ursa Mini Pro. It's a really great camera, and if you're like, okay, I'm ready to invest in it, and then I have other money to get lenses, that makes sense. But I think if it's, you know, the big chunk of your spending, I think having the body of a package be more than half the value of a package often ends up with a package that doesn't really feel complete or of a piece. Um, and it'd be way better to get, like, a great sensor in a smaller camera and then build accessories around it. And, like, the A7S II with an Atomos... You see beautiful stuff shot with that combo all the time. Uh, good luck. Let us know what you decide on. Thanks, Charles, and thanks for your question, Robert. And now moving on to some movies opening this weekend. Coming to Amazon Prime Instant is Snowden on July 8th. 
This is Oliver Stone's most recent feature, which premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival back in 2016, and while it didn't win any major awards, it majorly rattled some cages. Snowden is a dramatic account of nine years in the whistleblower Edward Snowden's life, anchored by a procedural of the tenuous 13 days in a Hong Kong hotel room in 2013, during which The Guardian published the former CIA agent's classified documents. Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays Snowden and is surrounded by an all-star cast, including Melissa Leo, Shailene Woodley, and Nicolas Cage. Was Nicolas Cage one of the cages that got rattled? (laughs) I think he's like a—I saw this film. I think he's a professor of something. He just keeps telling all the kids in his class to watch Mandy. It's very strange. (laughs) I agree with him. Emily caught the premiere and ensuing press conference back at TIFF. At the time, the film was controversial, but in today's world, its subject feels scarily tame. Stone said, quote, Americans don't know anything about it because the government lies about it all the time. What's going on now is pretty shocking. What they're doing is illegal, and they keep doing it. This story not only deals with eavesdropping, but mass eavesdropping, drones, and cyber warfare. As Snowden said himself the other day, the world is out of control. And so this was two years ago, and all of this is pretty much basic fact now. <laughs> yeah. Actually, and say, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but in the end credits, there is an appearance by the actual Edward Snowden as well. Like he's, there's footage of him. Not, it's not archival. Like he's actually in the movie in a very interesting meta way. Hmm. Well, uh, I know that it's largely based on Citizen Four, mm-hmm. um, which was a documentary by Laura Poitras. Yeah, think. and Melissa Leo plays her in the yeah. movie. Oh, there you go. So it's it's kind of weird if you're watching them back to back. It's kind of cool. It's like a filmmaker's film in a exactly, way. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's a good uh, American double feature for the Fourth of July, I think. Snowden and Citizen Four. So you can read the whole article that Emily wrote about that conference on the site. Uh, We'll have a link to it in the article accompanying the podcast. And on Netflix, you can check out The Legacy of a White-Tailed Deer Hunter, which comes out July 5th, which is today. This is one film I missed out on at South by Southwest that I was pretty stoked about seeing. Um, That's because it's from the minds of Jody Hill and Danny McBride, who in the past created Eastbound and Down. uh, And actually, they made Vice Principals 2, which is another HBO show that I'm currently watching that is pretty good. And in the future... uh, Maybe more excitingly, they will be releasing the new Halloween reboot later this year. In any case, they're known for their really dark indie films like The Foot Fist Way and Observe and Report. The legacy of a white-tailed deer hunter is about the great hunter Buck Ferguson, who's played by Josh Brolin, and his trusted cameraman Don, who's played by Danny McBride. They set out for an epic weekend adventure to reconnect with Buck's young son. And along with that sort of hunting theme and white tails and white tails another movie that's coming to netflix on july 5th is a film called white fang this is based on the timeless novel by jack london white fang follows the story of a boy who befriends a half-breed wolf as he searches for his father who has mysteriously gone missing during the gold rush it's an animated film but what makes this title truly stand out is that it currently has been translated into 89 different languages The English dub stars Rashida Jones, Nick Offerman, and Paul Giamatti. If you've got kids, then this could be a good indie to start them out on. It uh, was at Sundance earlier this year. Yeah, our writer, Max Winter, funny enough, his last name is Winter, and this Mm. feels like a movie about Winter, Snowden, and (laughs) White Fang. Anyway, Max uh, really enjoyed the movie, and he is uh, trying to secure an interview with the director, so look out for that on nofilmschool.com later this week. I need to know if it's a half-breed wolf. What's the other half? Dog. Dog. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I don't need to see it now. Thank you. I kind of wish the movie was called Wolf Dog. 
wolf dog. Yeah. Is that redundant? No, they're not actual dogs, right? The descendants of are wolves the descendants of dogs are the descendants of wolves? Mm. Maybe? No. Yeah, I think so. Either way, we should start a band. Definitely. Wolf Crow, Wolf Dog. <laughs> wolf Crow the band. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, available now on Hulu is Eurotrump, which is a documentary that follows the right-wing populist Geert Wilders as he runs for Dutch prime minister. The filmmakers obtained exclusive access to Wilders, who's lived under 24-hour security protection for the past 12 years during threats on his life because of his very... Um, boisterous proclamations. This film unearths the man behind the media mask, providing many revelations about the man who's called the Dutch Donald Trump, hence the title of the film Eurotrump. It was directed by Nick Hampson and Stephen Robert Morse. Stephen Robert Morse is actually a contributor to No Film School, and he's told me that, like Trump, Wilders is a very divisive figure, and in trying to make an objective portrait of him, the film itself became very divisive. So it sounds really interesting, even as a study in documentary filmmaking. We've also had Stephen on a really great recent podcast called No Business School, How to Save Time and Money on Your Films, where he shares practical tips that he gained at Oxford Business School to make filmmaking more cost effective. So we will link to that in the podcast post as well. Now coming to theaters on Friday is one of my favorite films out of Sundance and one of the most creative movies I've ever seen. It's finally going to be here. It's called Sorry to Bother You. It's the debut feature from director Boots Riley, who made his name as frontman to a Bay Area underground hip-hop band that I've loved for a long time called The Coup. Sorry to Bother You is almost an impossible movie to describe. I keep thinking it's kind of like if Michelle Gondry took on capitalism and race relations. In it, Lakeith Stanfield of Atlanta fame plays a kind of sad sack telemarketer in a relationship with a woman played by Tessa Thompson of Westworld fame, otherwise known as Janelle Monet's girlfriend. What? Coolest couple ever. No, I don't think they're dating. Yeah, I, I think that don't was think so mis- either. They're misconstrued. Yeah. I think that was taken out of context. I thought the whole thing was that they came out as bi and they're they partners. They did, but they're not par- I don't think they're partners. I, think, <laughs> I, I don't know. That. I think she responded like the headline was very... It was, it was like... Sensationalized. Sh- yeah. She said that they were... They love each other very much. But that's like not a, they never said explicitly that they were a couple. Either way, even if they're BFFs, by BFFs, they're very cool. And I would like to be their friend. Anyhow, Tessa Thompson plays Lakeith Stanfield's girlfriend in the movie. And when he gets an opportunity to advance his career that seems too good to be true, it turns out to be really too good to be true. This movie is weird and hilarious and has amazing production design with lots of attention to little details that almost make it worth a second watch. But don't just take my word for it. For what it's worth, newly minted Academy member Questlove called it the must-see film of 2018. I've been told not to read too much about it. I've seen the trailer, but apparently the trailer just hints at what it's about. This is like telemarketer job and the voice, but it goes much further than that. But I haven't read anything more. That's a good point. And part of the reason that my description is also rather vague is that it does have quite a big twist, which you just I, I can't imagine who would see it coming? It's it's pretty out there. Okay. I see. And now moving on to some grant and opportunity deadlines. Studio Fest has its regular deadline on July 8th. I've mentioned this one before, but I'm bringing it up again because I think it's such a cool and unique opportunity. It's a new organization, again called Studio Fest, that's looking to fund first-time feature filmmakers. So if you've made a short or written a screenplay that are already completed, you can submit them for consideration. And then if you are chosen as one of the five short-form filmmakers and five feature-length scriptwriters, 
you get to um, attend the festival in September. It's going to be in a beautiful Catskills town. And at the end of the weekend, one director and one screenwriter from that group will be given the opportunity to partner with Studio Fest to embark on making a feature film with a budget between thirty and $50,000. And as an added bonus, I'm one of the judges and I'll be there in September too. For this opportunity, anyone from any country can enter as long as you're 18 or older, your submissions are in English or with English subtitles, and you have not yet made a feature. And the best part is that they've actually offered a 25% discount for No Film School listeners who enter the code STUDIOFESTNFS on Without a Box and Film Freeway. That's STUDIOFESTNFS, like No Film School, and the regular deadline is July 8th. And with the deadline of July 16th is Sony Diverse Directors Program. This program is committed to helping talented artists of diverse backgrounds build TV industry relationships for a possible career as a DGA episodic TV director. Program participants may be selected to shadow directors on episodes of scripted Sony TV series, and those participants who secure a shadow assignment on an episode, which will include pre-production, production, and post-production, which will extend to three or more weeks, will be paid a weekly stipend when actively shadowing on any aspect of the production. The duration of any shadow assignment and the number of shadow assignments will be at the sole discretion of Sony Pictures Television. And with a deadline of July 18th is the BAFTA Rowcliffe Writing for Children call. If you are a UK-based writer with a focus on content for children, the cops will be at your door in 15 minutes. No, uh, you could <laughs> be one of three projects selected for a BAFTA showcase and industry introductions for this particular call. It's a fantastic industry showcase at BAFTA's London headquarters with professional actors and directors, industry introductions, access to bespoke masterclasses, an in-depth script report on your completed screenplay, a featured spot on the forum list, and a tailored career planning and profile building session to provide support in navigating the industry. I would just say I I just finished reading It, finally, um, and I watched It last night. Speaking of content for children. The new one? Yeah, Yeah. the new one, speaking of content for children. Jesus, do you guys know how the book It ends? (laughs) Like, have you Uh, heard about... I'm not. I'm not gonna. Talk. Uh, well, I know there is a child orgy <laughs> yeah. thing. Wait, that, what? That's not in the movie. They they all take their clothes off and have like an orgy, right? Yeah. And that's not filmed. But they couldn't put that in the film. Is that how the book ends, or that's how the first part? That's how the book ends. Well, like the book a is sex is orgy much, with children. Yeah, yeah kind it's, of, kind it's of. worse than that. I'd. Even oh yeah. Say. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't read the book, but I've. That's yeah. basically the gist of it. Um, okay, uh, spoiler alert that I'm grateful for because I will definitely, definitely never read that book. Well, they don't. Yeah, and then they don't put it in the movie, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I remember that being a thing. It's like the unfilmable parts yeah. of this book. And I think that they said that they're going to address it in the next part, though. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know how. What? I was avoiding it because, like, I didn't want to hear about what this. I heard that something crazy happened at the end, like something really controversial of the book. So I was like, kind of keeping away from like reading anything about it. But then I was, I had this weird idea in my head throughout the entire time that it was going to be some sort of child sex thing. And it was. So they're making a sequel? I didn't know well, that. Well, so, so yeah. it's like uh, one gigantic book, and part one is them as youths, and then the second part is them as adults. So, yeah, in the so book, the actually, book, right? it's just like there's not separate parts. It oh, just it goes, like, back, goes and back and forth, which is actually oh. really interesting. Um, and I think that the movie kind of suffers uh, from not being in that format. Gotcha. Um, but, yeah, the movie is doing what you just said, where they're splitting it up into part one is the children and part two is the adults yeah. who come back and 27 years later have to kill it forever. Yeah. I'll see it. I didn't, I didn't love it. 
it. I didn't, I didn't love, love it. it I didn't think it was as uh, shocking or crazy. Was... It got a little stupid after yeah. a while, but you know. really, I thought it was supposed to be one of the like best yeah. well, horror movies of all time. <sighs> the opening scene is pretty good. Yeah, the uh, opening scene is really good. Yeah, and the rest of it just kind of goes down downhill. A little it bit. falls apart into just like horror jump scares, mm-hmm. um, and they kind of sacrifice a lot of the feeling of the book. But oof. Yeah. And oh, sorry, it's now a tangent. Uh, I was gonna say, yeah. glad we brought this up. Yeah, yeah. But also the one thing that bothered me too. Now that we're talking about children, because what we <laughs> always do is that like everybody has their own fear, and that's what it is preying on. I think there's a difference between like having parental abuse mm-hmm. and being afraid of clowns. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there are real fears that are actually built into something. That have real danger. That have real danger in ones that is afraid of a creepy librarian or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm just saying. It's uh yeah, the whole the whole childhood thing is a bit better uh in the book. Oh. But I mean that I think that's like to be expected. Sure. Yeah. But there's so many good Stephen King adaptations that's that true. it was like hard for me to I, I was like really excited to see it because um, I just watched Carrie the other day again and like that's an amazing movie mm-hmm. uh, and you know like there, Stand By Me Shawshank Redemption The uh, Shining Misery Misery fun. there's been all these great like um, adaptations and like reimaginings of yeah. Stephen King's work remaking Pet Cemetery now yeah. Too, so. yeah and moving on to festival deadlines <laughs> <laughs> anyone <laughs> Uh, <laughs> oh, so you're just going to interrupt our conversation about, about it Stephen King? I mean, he's a real uh, Americana uh, author. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. true. Happy successful. Independence Day. Uh, <laughs> I can do this one. Uh, July 6th, the festival deadline for the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival t- is happening. It takes place in Hot Springs National Park, Arkansas, from October 19th through October 27th. This is the extended and final deadline, and it is an Academy Award qualifying festival. The winning short film in the documentary short film competition is eligible for the Academy Awards consideration, and it is the oldest nonfiction festival in North America. That is that is their quote. We don't have an exact year on that, but uh, why would we argue? Uh, awards are given in the categories of Best U.S. Documentary Feature, Best International Documentary Feature, Best Documentary Short, Best Sports Documentary, and also an Audience Award as well as additional re- recognition determined by the juries. Yeah, and while we're talking about hot springs, uh, there is this scene in it where like they <laughs> build there? a clubhouse yeah. in the book. Oh, 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 there's no clubhouse in the movie, which is crazy. How that's are you gonna make a Stephen King movie about children without clubhouse in it? Yeah, Anyways, that's a good point. Uh, do in, they have an orgy in a hot spring? I was gonna say, do they go to the hot no, spring of the movie? They, I don't recall. They like lock themselves in this room, uh, in this like clubhouse that they've built in, which is underground, and then they set uh, smoke fire. Uh, and they turn it into like a hot house so they can hallucinate, and that's kind of how I feel right now. <laughs> ah. mm. Yes, I'm not the one that talked about the weather and/or the heat. Oh, well, that's true. If uh, any of you guys start to hear anything from like a turtle, or like have visions of a turtle, we're hallucinating. Just buy into those. Yeah, I'll do trust, that's trust cool. in them. And no, it's good that we're making this episode extra long with all this talk about it, since it's 900 degrees in here and I'm sweating out all my toxins. We were going to actually read the book in total uh, from beginning to end on it's this only, episode. It's only uh, 1,140 pages. We're going to so. do an audio uh, book. That's going to be our next guys. podcast miniseries. First it was the first feature. Now it's going to be our reading of it. Let's do it. Meanwhile. I, I hear that Steven Weber does a really good reading of it, though, on an audio book. So. Who is that? I don't know. He's a – isn't he the guy who's in – is that someone else? I don't know. Mm, the I don't Blacklist? Know. Is that someone else? It could be. I, I haven't know. seen. Yeah. Anyways. Anyway. So, John. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to hear more about it? 
<laughs> yeah, I was about to ask you. Maybe it has played at the Chicago International Film Festival. <laughs> uh, well, I wouldn't know that, but I do know that it takes place in Derry, Maine, and not Chicago, Illinois. Oh. But there is a deadline on July 6th for the Chicago International Film Festival. Did you want to talk about this, Liz, or did you want me to talk about you it? You go for it. Okay, I'll talk about it. Uh, it takes place in Chicago from October 10th to the 21st, 2018. It's the late and final deadline. This is one of the longest-running film festivals in the United States, and uh, that's at 54 years, so it maybe has a little bit more credibility in saying that it's old than the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival. But it is an Academy Award-qualifying festival, and uh, every year they hold a new director's competition with a selection of first and second feature films. So if you got a first or second feature film, keep this one on your radar. Also with a deadline uh, this week is the Atlanta Film Festival. Or next week, July 12th. Or next week for July 12th. Uh, it's really, you know, the last day. It would be, yes. the. Anyways, it takes place on April 4th to the 14th, 2019 in Atlanta, Georgia. A very hot city. This is the early bird deadline, obviously. This is not until next year, but, you know, it's that time. It's going to be in its 42nd year, and it's an Academy Award qualifying festival, and they call it the Southeast Preeminent Celebration of Cinema and the flagship production of the Atlanta Film Society. And Atlanta's a pretty big city for film these days, so that's uh, that's pretty good. It's, of course, been named a Top 50 Festival worth the entry fee and one of the 25 coolest film festivals in the world by Movie Maker Magazine. They have cash prizes ranging from $500 to $1,000, and I imagine they're over a ton of different categories. So, good fest. I would go to a festival called Good Fest. <laughs> mm, there's the good pitch. Mm-hmm. And now for our weekly words of wisdom. Weekly words of wisdom. They, they don't come from Stephen King, but he actually has a good book called On Writing, where he talks about his writing process. You oh, should does check he? out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. I'll let you borrow it. Uh, Although BAM Cinema Fest recently concluded last weekend, we saw a few of the films featured at this year's festival, including the titled Two Planes and a Fancy from directors Lev Kalman and Whitney Horn. The film is in, hard to describe, but we'll try, existential comedy western period piece set in 1893 in which three visitors, a mystic, a geologist, and a watercolorist, jointly travel to the Colorado valleys to indulge in the soothing pleasures of the state's Hot Springs. Oh go my again. god, it's the Hot Springs episode. I kid you not. I kid you not. Uh, the film's style is a tough sell, as was the filmmaker's previous feature, the equally eclectic L for Leisure. And in asking the filmmakers about the current film festival distribution landscape for difficult, uh, hard-to-market films such as theirs, Kelman admitted, quote, The pessimistic view would be that it seems like with the infusion of Netflix and Amazon and other streaming platforms, there's a belief that there are so many buyers at these indie festivals. As a result, this steers the indie festivals toward creating the kinds of products that those buyers would be interested in. That's a bummer in the sense that it feels like there's a narrowing of identity within festivals, from being like, oh, there's a wide variety of different kinds of weird festivals, to almost having it be a struggle for those to survive. It makes many of them feel a bit more similar. That's something we've noticed in the bad sense. However, in the positive sense, it feels like places are now more willing to understand that there are different kinds of movies that could play in all sorts of locations. That's what we noticed with Elf for Leisure, our previous film, a kind of opening up for it as the year went on. It went from playing at strictly art film places to beginning to find a place in other kinds of venues. Um, and I just like that he Love was pretty honest in discussing this as well. Um, 
there are times when you, if you're on a programming committee or a screening committee, you'll kind of say like, oh, this is a and I, you know, it's not it's so reductive, but like, oh, this is a South by movie. You know, this is like this is like a Sundance. Movie. It's trying to be a Sundance movie, but it's more of a uh, Tribeca kind of, you know, all, the, all those kind of like reductive statements that don't really mean much. Uh, but we've kind of codified them in, in certain ways. Uh, and it's interesting to see maybe filmmakers think they know what a Sundance movie is, quote unquote, and they are trying to make it with the, you know, trying to make it so that it plays at that festival rather than finding the festival right for them after they make it. Uh, so it is, he admits that's a little bit of a pessimistic view, but uh, I think there is some truth to it. If anyone called my movie that, I would be like really happy. <laughs> it's a Sundance movie. You can go ahead and reduce my movie. Yeah, to a Sundance I feel movie the same way South too. I'm Southwest. Yeah. Happy to make a Sundance yeah. movie. Ugh, you're one of those Oscar movies. Yeah. Like, hey, if I am, I am, man. You know, if I am, I am. What it is, it is. Yeah. It. It comes back to it. Oh. Should we talk more about it? Yeah. <laughs> One thing I will I will say, not about it, but with July 4th coming up, uh-huh. I would just want to know. Or, or yesterday. Yesterday. No, sorry, guys. We are, tomorrow for us is July 4th, and it's also the day of the purge. And what? That was, it's, it's, yeah, I've we heard. All, we all purge mm-hmm. on July 4th, you know, when crime is legal for a day. There's a new purge movie coming out, too, this What are you week, talking about? Tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Are you like, about to admit reviews. that you're going to like go do some crimes? Well, I think that's. I think you're allowed to for a day. So I just was wondering if we were all going to – maybe I'll be the only one doing some. I was going to download some movies illegally, get food, and then walk out before paying. I think I'm purging about a ton of sweat while we sit oh, here. Oh, God. Okay. Sorry. So, moving on <laughs> – for shout-outs this week, the New York Asian Film Festival kicked off last weekend, and it runs through July 15th. The lineup includes 58 new films, including the second-highest-grossing blockbuster in Chinese history, Operation Red Sea, which would be interesting to check out just to get an understanding of one of the world's biggest box office markets. If seeing some of the best contemporary films from all over Asia isn't enough for you, consider this. IndieWire claims that, quote, it wouldn't be NYAFF without an epic... <laughs> nudity-filled biopic about a famous pornographer, end quote. And this year, that film is Dynamite Graffiti. <laughs> Woo! What was it last year, I wonder? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll ask IndieWire. <laughs> Meantime... I think it was like My Grandmother Wei Lin, I think it was called. Uh, wow, yeah, <laughs> I'm just, I didn't know. I'm not going to so unpack good. all of that. Um... Also, I probably won't be here next week because it's my birthday, so shout out to me. Wee! Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> it's kind of getting hot. Let's move it on. Yeah, wow. come on. Wow. Let's keep moving. I, I'm sure I'll get some birthday <laughs> tweets. I'm sweating a lot here. Do you have anything you more to say about it? I don't, I don't know if I, uh, you know, it's just it restigmatizes raincoats. Yeah. Uh, you know, yellow raincoats. People get scared of balloons a lot easier now. That's true. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like Nightmare on Elm Street, and they do have a title, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, on one of the movie theater marquees, which mm-hmm. is a nice throwback mm-hmm. with Lethal yeah. Weapon yeah. 2. Damn, like you that. pay really... When was the last time you saw this movie? Right after film week in September. <laughs> I went on my first day off. You have quite the filmic memory. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Eric is detail-oriented. That I, is true. I feel like if I were on a trivia team, I would definitely want him on the team. Let's do it. Um, and then, meanwhile, even though I may not be on next week's show, we have Monday's podcast coming up. So next Monday, the podcast features one of the most interesting behind-the-scenes stories I have ever heard. Uh, it's with a team that had both a documentary and a narrative feature premiere at Tribeca this year, and that's not even the most unique and impressive things about them. Uh, the films are called The OG and It's a Hard Truth, Ain't It?, 
And what's amazing is that both films were shot in an active maximum security prison. The documentary was co-directed by 13 incarcerated men, and the feature was cast with more than 90% real inmates as extras and even as one of the leads. So it's just like unbelievable how they pulled this off. And it's a really interesting, experienced team who I uh, have as guests. Wolfgang Held, who is a very experienced documentary shooter, he actually shot that um, that mockumentary, Bruno, remember the Sasha Baron Cohen movie, um, and Emmy Award-winning director Madeline Sackler, and Boyd Holbrook, who you might know as an actor with leading roles in Narcos and Logan, he had a supporting role in the, the movie The Last OG, but he also helped produce both of these films. So it's like, it's just a mind-boggling conversation. I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you guys. I think we've had that Bruno DP on our show before, which is kind of funny. So Really? I didn't think Wolfgang had been on the show. Yeah, I think oh, he wow. was. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, He's German. Do you remember him? No, I didn't do it. I wasn't the, it, it wasn't my interview. So it wasn't I, mine either. It must have been Oakley's or Emily's. I think... Yeah, maybe maybe it might have been Ryan, too. It was really early. Oh, early. Okay, I'm going to look into it. If we can find that episode, I will link to it in this week's podcast post, where you can also find links to all the articles that we talked about uh, in this week's show. And um, that's going to be at nofilmschool.com, along with tons of original content, new articles and videos and podcasts about the craft of filmmaking every single day. If you liked this episode, you can get a new one every week and interview shows every Monday by searching for the No Film School podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And uh, it's also wonderful when you guys leave us those nice ratings and reviews. Actually, we've gotten some new ones recently, so thank you all so much. It really, really, it's just such a nice feeling to read those, and we know that um, they help other people find the show, so that's awesome. Um, you can also stay in touch with us. I am at LizFilm on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Eric Lures on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim on Twitter. On Twitter. What do you want on Instagram? I don't know. I don't uh. know if I want to give my Instagram <laughs> to people. It used to be Jizzcam. That's true. He's very secretive. You could, if you listen to last week's episode, you can learn it the was... entire story behind the Jizzcam. Exactly. How was your dad's birthday? My dad's birthday was fine. I called him. He was detailing his car. And uh, then he went on a hike. <laughs> Boom. Oh, I love your dad. Mystery solved. Lots of July birthdays in this crew. Sure. I, I was going to mention Eric's, but that Mine's can be for next week's show. 14th, yeah. July 14th, baby. My dad's birthday was in June, but that, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, but it's summer. Summer birthdays. He's, a cancer. Yeah, he's a cancer. We're all cancers. Yeah, we're all cancers. Well, that's what my mother tells me. To society. Wow. Okay. Happy Independence Week, and see you soon. Thanks, guys. You'll float, too. Yeah, you'll float. It. Hello, George. <laughs> he was good. <laughs> yeah, he was good.